0: By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybetemidrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Um,
1: The ongoing excavations directed by Jody Magnus in the 5th century century Synagogue at Hukok in Lower Eastern Galilee, and here you can see the site. This is the Sea of Galilee, and this is the site of Capernaum, famous from the New Testament. Here's Tiberius, uh, Magdala, Migdal is here. So Hukok is in this, um, about 10 kilometers off of the Sea of Galilee, up into the hill country in what's called Lower Eastern Galilee. The excavations have revealed a series of impressive floor mosaics. And here you have an overall plan of the synagogue. Um, It's a Galilean-type synagogue, which means that um, it's oriented southward towards Jerusalem uh, and has its main entrances on the south side of the building. Uh, Interior to the building, it has... um, Three side aisles running on the east, the north, and the west, and a central nave at the center of the building. And the entire floor was uh, covered in, um, in floor mosaics. Was this,
2: uh, this is still Byzantine
1: Yes. Um, this is from around the year 400, so you might call it late Roman, uh, late Roman Byzantine, depending on who you're asking. The subject matter of these mosaics departs significantly from the common repertoire of images found in other synagogues in Galilee, thereby challenging conventional scholarly assumptions regarding synagogue mosaics, especially their supposedly circumscribed range of imagery. Several of the Hukok mosaic panels employ violent imagery or military imagery or refer to narratives in which the Israelites or Jews inflict violence on their enemies, The theme is present in the east aisle of the synagogue in a pair of scenes that depict episodes from the life of Samson. Here you can see we're pointing to the Samson panels. We'll look at these in greater detail in the course of the lecture. Um, Unfortunately, I'm going to have to ask you not to take pictures because some of these materials are not yet published, I I apologize.
2: Right, that's exactly what... uh,
1: um, this is an ongoing archaeological dig and so these materials are, um, can't be publicized otherwise except by the project itself uh, These a pair of um, episodes from the life of Samson uh, as well as uh, in a panel that per, uh, portrays a military encounter between armed Judeans and uh, a Greek army that's found here
2: Sure. How many people would the synagogue
1: um, have accommodated? It would have not accommodated the entire population of the village that it was located in, so probably a couple of hundred. Uh, the village uh, that, um, in which it was built, uh, it's very difficult to say what the population was, and the, the whole village has not yet been excavated, so the actual um, parameters of the village are not known, but we're talking about, in the order of a couple thousand uh, villagers. Um, so it would, it's not a town, it's certainly not a city, it's a rural village in the hinterland based in some sort of agricultural fields and work. Um, but, uh, so um, a significant but not a complete um, part of the population. Um, but depending on... So
2: a couple hundred there, kind Yeah,
1: of... exactly, yeah.
2: And the women go to synagogue too?
1: Uh, no. It, it seems that women went to synagogue, and, and none of these synagogues uh, from this period have a separate women's gallery. Uh, whether um, uh, they stayed uh, home on times when they might have conveyed menstrual impurity is a question, and some sources would suggest that that's true, um, but there is no separate women's gallery um, in these synagogues. And in many synagogues, uh, although... So we were <laughs> they were before all of that. Right. Um, they weren't even necessarily rabbinic Jews. So, so
2: the, just put it into a context? Did you say that synagogue was built approximately 400 yes. CE? Yes. Yep. Now, were the Romans still.
1: Yes, this is uh, Roman Palestine? Absolutely. They The Romans were in control of the Levant, Syria, Palestine. In Egypt, up until the Islamic conquest in the seventh century, there was a, a moment in the seventh century when the Sasanian Persians uh, captured Jerusalem in 614. But essentially, it was a, a Roman province. Um, it was split. Uh, this part of Palestine was split into three separate Roman provinces in the year 400.
2: This is right after the plague, really
1: yeah, that's in, in the sixth century um, during Justinian. So. Um, so uh, the, the theme of violence, either actualized or potential, also pervades the mosaic floor in the nave of the synagogue, where one panel depicts Noah's Ark here. Um, and we'll see this scene as well. And another, the violent drowning of Pharaoh's army in the waters of the, of the Red Sea, just below Noah's Ark. Uh, during the exodus from Egypt, and still another here, but beneath that is a scene of Jonah being swallowed by a fish after being thrown overboard by the Gentile sailors.
2: What's a nave? What is it? You said nave, this is the nave. What is the
1: nave? The nave of the synagogue is the central portion of the synagogue uh, that is the main hall of the synagogue, and around that would have been columns with side aisles. So we talk about aisles um, to the sides, and the nave is the central portion of of the building. So given how surprising this particular selection of narrative materials has been to modern scholars, we must ask why the community in this modest Galilean village, or at least some of its members, commissioned floor mosaics that depict scenes of violent confrontation with the enemies of the people of Israel. And what symbolic? ideological or performative functions this martial imagery fulfilled within the local context of the Hukok synagogue. Why was this community compelled to include so much um, military imagery and imagery of destruction? So, this evening, I would like to consider what this violent imagery can tell us about the about Jewish culture in late antique Palestine. By late antique, I mean from around the 3rd century till around the 7th century uh, in Palestine, this period uh, of um, Roman history. And especially the the role that material culture played in the formation of Jewish community and identity. The mosaics uncovered in the excavations at Hukok offer us a renewed appreciation of the enduring appeal that the ideas of militant piety, that is, uh, a militant form of religiosity that it held for some late antique Jews. And what I want to argue is that this particular group of mosaics, uh, what it does is it transforms the use of military power and violence into a kind of redemptive act. This is uh, telling stories of redemption by God for the Jewish people. The scenes of martial violence on the floor of the Hukok Synagogue offered the viewing community, the community that would make use of the synagogue, a vision of its heroic past in which human uh, military strength and divine retributive justice, that's God's ability to uh, judge uh, the world, acted in perfect concert. So these human actors are working together with God. But more than providing a graphic synopsis of Israelite and Jewish history, the mosaic floor made visible a series of models or exempla that the community might look to or even invoke during worship. As a number of scholars have emphasized, it is the Jewish liturgy from late antique Palestine rather than rabbinic literature that provides the most immediate performative context for the synagogue mosaics. So there's a divide among scholars, many scholars, when they look at the mosaics and synagogues, look to rabbinic literature in order to explain the selection of stories and the concerns. Uh, Others, and and here I'm putting myself more in that camp, uh, will look to the liturgy liturgy itself, the kinds of stories that were performed, literally, by the prayer leaders uh, in the course of the liturgy through recitation, of biblical but also um, non-biblical stories. And so what I want to do is I want to suggest that the sequence of panels in this particular synagogue has affinities, similarities to certain portions of the synagogue liturgy, which recount how the Jews or their ancestors violently confronted their enemies. And I want to look to at least one branch of Jewish prayer, penitential prayer, um, for a resource for understanding these stories. Penitential prayer often invoked specific exempla or models drawn from biblical or post-biblical history, and it's this branch of prayer that I think provides uh, a close parallel for the mosaic floor at Hukok. This what I would call a muscular discourse discourse that is kind of an image of the Israelites or the Jews as uh, militarily strong, whether displayed in stone or performed in prayer, projected an image of the synagogue community as a formidable but respectable, assertive but faithful group within the Roman Empire. So I'm going to start with uh, the elephant mosaic. Um, and, uh, this is a extraordinary work of art, um, that depicts a very complex story and, um, uh, I think encapsulates the themes of military victory and divine redemption that are found within the broader mosaic program, uh, throughout the synagogue. Now, the, uh, panel, which is in the east aisle of the synagogue, was located in front of a side entrance. Uh, There was uh, almost certainly a doorway right here. So although the panel is not in the entrance space of the synagogue, it was uh, in front of a side doorway, which must have um, been um, a major uh, entry point, perhaps from a street that was more significant even than the southern street. Uh, The orientation of the building um, is this way because Jerusalem is to the south. But um, these panels here um, were seen by viewers uh, as they entered the synagogue, and they were oriented so that if you walked in the door, you saw the images. Whereas, for example, the Samson panels, you would, in order to kind of see them properly, you'd have to stand here in the nave in the main space of the synagogue and look at them this way. So there's a real attempt to um, uh, uh, make these these images and these stories um, available to viewers from appropriate angles. And these very, very high quality panels are placed in front of this side entrance.
2: they're standing up? They're vertical?
1: Or they no, they're on the floor. floor. These are floor mosaics. But if you stand on at the uh, doorway, you would stand looking in. And they have very um, strong similarities to works that were um, vertical on the walls or triumphal columns or other kinds of um, uh, period art that would have been viewed. Um, and if you can see, the panels um, grow larger as you go up. Um, which is a feature of many uh, pieces of art that are um, meant to be viewed vertically. Uh, And one possible explanation is that synagogue mosaics um, uh, were always laid on the floor because uh, the type of architecture couldn't accommodate wall and and certainly not um, ceiling mosaics like you have in some of the churches um, from this period, uh, but that they were taking... Style of work that might have been displayed in other settings on the ceiling or on the wall, and they were putting it on, on the floor.
2: Did this level of, of work that this a prosperous village. is typical for real This is
1: absolutely not typical. You're talking about um, a uh, a work of mosaic art that is on the level of an imperial commission. Um, so the, the, the number of tesserae in this part of the mosaic, if you take a square decimeter and you put it over the mosaic and you count the number of um, tesserae in that is around f- over 500. Uh, it's a little bit lower in other parts of the panel. Other panels within the synagogue Um, are more in the regular range, which is something like 150 to 200. So it's enormously expensive. It would be technically difficult. And it's not really clear how they paid for it or who the craftspeople were. And it really is uh, um, unusual on many counts. Uh, So both its orientation in the synagogue, its high level of um, production, apparent cost, Right, but then, you know, who are these people living in a rural village who have connections to uh, the fine arts of the great cities of the Roman East, and...
2: Maybe um, it was an artisan who paid the synagogue to by doing the mosaics.
1: Uh, we would love to know, and maybe someday we'll find other works that can be attributed to this workshop or this artist, and we'll have further answers, but right now... I mean, it is a very, very important question. So in addition to this very unusual qualities of this particular panel, um, its it's subject matter is also very unusual. It it is clearly interested in uh, history of military conflict and, as I'm going to argue, cooperation between Jews and Greeks in the Hellenistic period. And it departs from everything that we thought we knew about the artistic conventions that govern synagogue art. so just to walk you through the panel the these are called so this is called a panel it's a the framed uh, part of a mosaic floor is composed of individual panels and within a panel we have what are called registers so i'm going to begin here with uh, the bottom register and it clearly depicts a scene of bloody warfare or the aftermath of a battle and the far left hand side we see a soldier who is uh, falling. Um, he's uh, been slain by a javelin. I don't know if you can see, but there's a dead elephant. Uh, and on top of the elephant is a rider also slain. And next to them, a bull with three javelins coming out with um, blood spilling to the floor. Hence my title for the talk, Blood on the Floor. Um, you'll notice that whoever is inflicting this damage is not depicted in the bottom register. So there's an army that's been defeated by javelin, but the opposing army is not depicted. It was very unusual. We often see in war scenes from the ancient Near East all the way through the Alexander panel from Pompeii uh, that we, two opposing sides engaged in warfare. So th- we think there's a puzzle here. The middle register is formed by this arcade uh, with a, um, an older, bearded, white-haired figure Um, sitting on a throne beneath uh, an arched arcade with um, lighted oil lamps above um, their heads. And either side, four uh, youths left and right um, with distinctive hairstyles dressed in um, ceremonial dress. And they're holding um, swords, and they're holding the swords by the hilts. Right. Um, possibly, uh, there's speculation that the, the lamps themselves might have conveyed a certain sanctity. Um, although stand, figures standing under arches are not so uncommon, and the, differs from the kind of halos that we would see, uh, the nimbus that we see, say, for example, in Christian art right. for saints and um, and the like. Yes. So uh, in a, in a se- totally separate paper um, that I won't be talking about tonight, but one of the closest parallels that we see is the image of uh, uh, Christ um, teaching his disciples in uh, Santa Potenziana in Rome from precisely the same period, from around the year 400, one of the first um, monumental mosaics, and uh, on a... Um, uh, on a, a, a ceiling or a, a, a an arch and uh, uh, Christ is sitting in front of an arcaded street which um, is very clear that it's Jerusalem because behind it are the city are the buildings of Jerusalem but they're not from the first century they're from The Constantinian Jerusalem with the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and other important central buildings. Um, And so it's, and each of the figures is, so we think that this um, uh, is a representation of uh, Jerusalem captured um, as a kind of icon, the way that we might have, uh, you know, if I showed you a picture of the Empire State Building, you'd say New York. So this um, uh, arcaded streets were the signature um, sort of um, icon for cities in mosaic art throughout the Near East. Yes?
2: Do you know if they work directly on the ground or did they work on a table, finish it, and
1: then move it? Um, They worked directly on the ground. There was, uh, in an earlier period, um, mosaics uh, uh, that that are called emblema or emblema, emblemata that were made in the workshop and then brought to the floor and then laid in, but then those were relatively small panels, uh, and then the floor, the larger floor was laid around them. In this case, um, it's very clear that the, the, the workmen would have, um, worked on site and we actually have found the, um, uh, unused tesserae. They would cut tesserae from, um, Um, Stems of rock and then once they got to the bottom of it They couldn't cut anymore and then they would sort of throw those in the in the in in the heap And so in the course of the excavation they found these so it's quite clear we have depictions of this um, In in other art and descriptions of it in text. So it's very clear that they worked there as well. Okay, so um, Now we move to the top register. We can see uh, this central figure with the white hair standing immediately above what must be also the same figure. Uh, But in this case, um, he's uh, leading the group of youths whose hairstyles match uh, one for one, the hairstyles of these youths. We have the same group depicted twice, once in the middle register and once in the top register. uh, And they're either um, they're encountering, that's the most neutral way of putting it, uh, what looks like a Greek king with very specific insignia. For example, the fillet um, that was made um, the uh, sign of kingship following Alexander the Great and a Greek-style phalanx, an overlapping set of soldiers with shields and spears and helmets and a pair of battle elephants uh, that um, are very unusual uh, in... uh, Jewish art and otherwise unparalleled, and do not appear in the Hebrew Bible. So, um, this is one of the reasons why we and many others think that this is a non biblical scene. Think
2: it's
1: what? A non biblical scene. Elephants are not mentioned in the Hebrew Bible. I'm going to say more about that. So, this seems to be the climax of the larger narrative. And uh, in our interpretation, um, these youths are in fact sheathing their swords. They are putting away their swords um, during this encounter and there seems to be um, a moment of um, coming together, rapprochement between these two figures. So um, we're going to get to that in a second. Now, um, the leader of the group on the right-hand side here, our king, uh, wears the dress and the insignia of a king or emperor on military campaign. Uh, the chest piece called the cuirass, the purple, clamus, uh, and the diadem are all marks of kingship. But the combination of the purple cloak and the cuirass, uh, with the ornate, decorated belt, here. Uh, is distinctively late Roman and imperial as exemplified, um, for example, by this famous portrait from Venice uh, of the Tetrarchs from around the year 300, where you can see the very distinctive um, features of imperial dress, military imperial dress. So his the dress of this figure conforms to what was worn by emperors in late antiquity in keeping with the modes of contemporization in the art of the period. Now with, the right, with his right hand, the king gestures toward a bull. See that? Whose horn he grasps with his left hand. The bull stares directly at an object. Right here, you can see this line of sight. Uh, that the white-haired leader gives to the king thereby underscoring what we think of as a kind of reciprocal nature of the exchange. The king is bringing what looks like some kind of sacrificial animal uh, to um, this figure, and in return there seems to be the handing of um, another object that he's holding right here. Now, in our interpretation, which I will admit is not shared by everyone, uh, we have argued that um, this scene depicts the siege of Jerusalem by the Seleucid king, by uh, the Seleucid king Antiochus the Seventh. It does, um, and and um, we think that um, this story that we're going to relate to uh, is from the same time period. As uh, the story of the Maccabees, and the first, okay, Um, uh, one of the first theories was that this, um, and I think some people still hold this, that um, the scene is somehow drawn from the stories of the Maccabees, um, uh, which is conceivable, and um, I'll talk about this in a second. May explain the um, the nine lamps. Uh, which some people have seen as a Hanukkah menorah, a Hanukkiah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, uh, so this, this event uh, that I'm referring to, the Siege of Jerusalem, probably strikes many of you and it strikes, struck many of our colleagues as quite obscure, um, but in fact it um, is repeated in many, many sources uh, in antiquity, uh, from... Um, the court historian of the king, Antiochus the Seventh, uh, all the way through um, quite a number of historians, and was in fact included in a kind of highly succinct uh, version by the famous um, Roman-era Greek author Plutarch, who wrote um, a collection in his *Moralia* on the sayings of kings and commanders, uh, in which he. he reports the events from the career of Antiochus the seventh and this is what he says the Jews when Antiochus was besieging Jerusalem Antiochus the seventh not Antiochus the fourth asked for an armistice of seven days for their most important festival which we know from other sources was the festival of Sukkot of tabernacles And he not only granted this, but he also made uh, ready bowls with gilded horns and a great quantity of incense and spices and brought all these in solemn procession as far as the gates. Then having transferred the offerings to the hands of their priests, he returned to his camp. The Jews were amazed and immediately after the festival placed themselves in his hands." So this is one of a half a dozen sources that tells this story. Um, And. In this, according to this uh, story, this leader would have been John Hyrcanus, who um, was uh, the nephew of Judah Maccabee, um, the son of Simon, grandson um, of Mattathias. So, from the Maccabean family, and is the first figure to um, come to power as. Uh, king and uh, high priest uh, under the Maccabees under the Hasmonean dynasty now uh, the emphasis on the bull and the elephant are very strongly suggestive not just of generic Hellenistic kingship but of Seleucid era uh, kingship um, and uh, the, uh, the coinage and other emblems of uh, royal power that were produced by the Seleucids depicted their leader, um, their founder Seleucus, as a bull with horns, and some of the coins have elephants with horns on them. So they had kind of mascots that were the elephant and the bull. And people in antiquity were quite aware that if you saw an elephant and a bull, that that was specifically linked to the Seleucid dynasty.
0: Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning.
1: So, uh, in the narrative, the leader of the Judeans, John Hyrcanus, pays off his debt to the Seleucid dynasty that he owes, tribute, in the form of coinage. He raises an independent army, and in fact they go on campaign together against the Parthians. So following the siege of Jerusalem, in which the Seleucid king is trying to exact tribute from the (coughs) Judeans, uh, the siege is not entirely successful. uh, And in the story, many of the Greek soldiers are actually killed during the siege. And this leads the king to sue for peace, which is in fact given. And as I said, John Hyrkonos gives money that his father had refused to pay to the king. And it brings about a period um, of uh, of cooperation between the two powers. So in this interpretation, we read the story from the bottom, from Uh, the Jewish defense of the city of Jerusalem, and specifically, uh, the use of javelins in order to um, fight against the Greek forces. You'll notice that in the rest of the scene, the youths are holding swords, but there's never hand-to-hand combat. These are the defenders of the city, but apparently the battle has been waged at a distance in which uh, it's the javelins that are um, inflicting the damage. So many other interpretations of this panel um, have been suggested. Very few of them can actually make sense of the particular choices that um, the um, narrative has um, put into place. For example, um, uh, the depiction of the battle.
2: Is there hope that some
1: of these people will be found? Unfortunately, this is gone for good. Um, uh, happily, um, this, is this is incredibly... Right, so what happened was, uh, in the Middle Ages, another community living in that same village, and it's not clear exactly when, and that's one of the big questions that the project's gonna have to answer. They built another building on top of this building, but it's actually good. Um, They put a mosaic floor down over it, and we have pieces of the mosaic for about one meter higher, and it's sealed in the floor. If you compare this to many other um, synagogues from this period, this is an amazing level of preservation, and you'll see further. So this is not the only, I could say more about this. I don't, I wanna keep moving. Uh, this is just one panel so you think oh, this is very unusual and this may be the first non-biblical story uh, to appear in Jewish synagogue art in any um, context that we know of Uh, but interestingly as the project progressed uh, there are many many more scenes that depict graphic uh, military violence or violent destruction so here I'm going to uh, walk you through some of these other materials. I
2: have a question. Yes. What is the age on some of the garments? Uh, there's the
1: H- many things to be. Uh, so the, the, this, is called an, um, this is called an eta. So in Greek, it's a capital letter. And uh, uh, I like to fantasize that it stands for Hyrkonos, but it doesn't. Uh, uh, it, it was like a kind of a high class status symbol. It's called a gamadion, so often it was in the form of a Greek letter gamma. This is even classier. This is not just two stitches. This is three stitches, and they're all wearing it, and it indicates their their high status. And, it's, and, we, and they have found um, not just um, in representations in art and not just in other parts of the world, but actually in the, um, the Barkochva uh, caves from the Barkochva Revolt, they found garments, and some of the garments have... Um, Gamadia, not Adas on them. So, this was a kind of another one of these things that to us seems incredibly obscure, but anybody in the ancient world would have been like as familiar with that as a Nike swoosh. We would go, oh, okay, that's a, a brand thing. Um, you'd have to be from, where are you from? Mars, was it? Mars. Mars, right. You have to be from Mars not to know, maybe even some Martians know what a Nike swoosh is. So, um, okay, so we're going to start. Uh, here in the north end of the nave and and work through some of these other scenes. Um, uh, So here, this is less well preserved, but you can also make out this is uh, a scene of Noah's Ark. Um, And it's also divided into registers, although not um, with borders, Uh, but you can see that there are registers of animals uh, land animals here, the birds are higher uh, instead of birds, and they 're clearly common pairs of animals with uh, what um, was uh, the ark here you 're wondering is that what an ark um, looks like in fact, in the ancient period, and i won 't show you um, uh, parallels uh, um, there uh, the ark was imagined as a kind of a chest, it was called the Kibotos in Greek, and it was a, a kind of a square chest with feet. That's how they, and you see this in many um, examples of early Christian art um, as a chest. So it wasn't kind of a round, you know, a boat that we imagine the Ark to have been. Um, but
2: the, the animals aren't un- pairs and they're not kosher
1: animals. Yeah, there are a lot of, un- right. there are That's an incredible number of unkosher animals. Yeah. Uh, I won't show you this because this was just discovered, but in the North Isle, um, uh, this past season, they discovered uh, the four beasts of Daniel seven, uh, which is you know there's a vision um, of the beasts that will come from the ocean that Daniel sees before he has his vision of the one like a son of man who will ride on the clouds, and the beasts are a lion with wings, um, a, a bear with kind of these um, fangs coming out of its mouth, a leopard with wings and four heads. And then the fourth beast isn't described, but the rabbis and uh, church fathers, reflecting this tradition, thought the fourth beast was clearly a a pig, um, mm-hmm. uh, identified with Rome, a wild boar. And there, in the synagogue, is a wild boar. So we have elephants. We have many, many. And you see our elephants here. There, um, Mickey Mouse. Looks like a yeah, yeah. Um, so. But, but
2: these are animals. So, no. Exactly. No. Uh, well, some of the
1: birds might have. Um, well, the question of like the sources and, and, and the sacrifice after, we know that there's two sources in and, and Genesis, and in some of them it's seven by seven for the animals that are to be sacrificed, two by two for the impure animals, and so on. Um, so this is clearly a certain version, and one that we'd be familiar with, you know, the two by two, but they had no compunction whatsoever depicting unkosher animals. There's eagles. There's right. um, you know lions, so on, um, and so uh, you can see here that um, there's the, the threat of divine violence that's going to be enacted on humanity uh, lurking behind this. And it's very interesting. something that we can't uh, yet figure out. But behind the ark was a stone building with a red tile roof that um, we think. Uh, Must depict uh, the the human habitation that is going to be overwhelmed uh, by the flood. So there's this, uh, which is not found in other comparable scenes. So this sort of divine retributive power for human sin is lurking behind this scene. Just beneath this panel is a scene depicting the drowning of the Pharaoh's soldiers in the Red Sea. Um, You can see uh, that. Here we have um, soldiers who are... Um, this is one of my favorite details. You can't see it at this level, but um, this soldier is looking this way, and this soldier is looking this way, and this soldier is cross-eyed. It's just amazing. Um, so, uh, um, and they're uh, on a horse, and they're about to kind of get tumbled down into this the waters of the sea. This... Um, um, and uh, it, it, what's very interesting is that Obviously, this evokes the narrative of the Red Sea, but it is especially evocative of Exodus 15, the Song of the Sea, which really emphasizes Pharaoh's army being tossed into the waves, the horses and the chariots, um, and so, which was um, already a part of, of the liturgy in the synagogue. So it's not a depiction, uh, as we'll see in a moment, um, of what we have in other places. Uh, For example, here in the wall mosaics from Santa Maria Maggiore in Rome, um, where you have uh, Moses um, leading the people, and then uh, the the Egyptian army is coming out of this city which represented Egypt and is being cast into the sea. But very central is the figure of Moses himself. Uh, Here, um, from um, a very important site, uh, from the 3rd century, a synagogue from the um, um, borderlands uh, area with the Persian Empire, a city called Durya Ropas. Uh It was a synagogue, which is, the, in this case, um, wall frescoes, paintings on walls, uh, that um, suggested that already in the 3rd century, uh, some Jewish community at a pretty provincial spot already had a visual vocabulary for telling biblical stories. And in their story of the Moses panel uh, of the Crossing of the Reds, you can see that Moses um, appears, in fact, three separate times. Um, He's here, he's here, and he's here, um, here, here, and here. Uh, Here we have the two large ones um, after he's using his staff to cause the sea to come together with the drowning Egyptians. He then leads out the leaders of the 12 tribes in military formation. But Moses is very central to that um, uh, 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 story. No. So here we have a very clear emphasis on um, the great power of God to punish the enemies of the Israelites. and significantly through the power of water. It's also what's um, behind the Noah panel. Um, Below the scenes with Noah, the Red Sea, and then below a zodiac with Helios, which is amazing in itself, but I won't talk about it here, is, um, oh yes, I was going to tell you about this. So this scene from the Hukok synagogue, which I'm showing here, Um, uh, has very, very strong resemblance to a synagogue that's three kilometers away Um, the archaeologist dates that synagogue somewhat earlier than we date our synagogue but the scenes are so similar here you can see the kind of state of preservation in many synagogues is much worse than what we have but you can see the type of fish uh, the emphasis on the horses and the chariots um, is a kind of very similar rendition of the scene. So, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about this synagogue at Wadi Hammam, but what you'll see is that there was a kind of uh, small micro region in which um, the kind of uh, mosaics that we found at Hukok, um were part of um, a larger phenomenon. They're not entirely outliers. So but below um, these two scenes I've been showing you of Noah and the Red Sea is a remarkable panel um, that depicts the uh, story of Jonah. It's the first um, Jonah panel that, uh, or any depiction of Jonah in any verified Jewish context from all of late antiquity. Uh, and it, by contrast, the story of Jonah was one of the most popular stories in early Christian art. Already in the pre-Constantinian period, so from the 3rd and early 4th century, there are approximately 125 items that depict the story of Jonah. They love this because Jonah went into the whale or the fish for three days uh, and then re-emerged, and that was understood to be a kind of type for Christ, but also somehow to address um, the fate of the dead, that somehow they would be promised release from death. So it was a very popular um, item in funerary art in early Christian funerary art um, so here we have once again uh, a kind of depiction of uh, the power of the sea to um, uh, punish or educate in this case the, the prophet of Jonah um, and and um, Uh, Jonah here appears with his legs bare sticking out of a series of three fish who are swallowing each other Um, and it's quite a fascinating scene Uh, it draws on um, similar scenes depicting um, Odysseus uh, strapped to a mast um, resisting the call of the sirens and if you can see here the Storm clouds that the mosaicist is depicting here to depict the storm that God brings uh, against the boat that Jonah is traveling on are depicted not just as harpies who uh, are associated with storms, so female figures with, as you can see, the, the female breasts, uh, but with um, bird wings and bird bustles, their tails, Um, but these figures are also playing musical instruments. So they're kind of a fusion, almost out of place, of storm figures, these um, harpies, but also sirens who are playing music in this scene. It's a very um, evocative use of uh, Greek mythological figures in order to convey the storm, but why would they be playing musical instruments? So there seems to be a kind of really interesting... um, um, use of this kind of scene from uh, scenes from Homer especially from the Odyssey who would,
2: be, who would the figure be to the right of the boat?
1: Uh, these figures here? Yeah. So these look like um, what we have here is the incorporation of fishermen doing day-to-day activities uh, here a fisherman casting a net um, there's two fishermen who are wringing out a net you can See the water dripping here? They look like they're floating in the water, but clearly they're meant to be on land, engaging in the sort of day-to-day activity. There's another panel um, that was recently discovered in the West Isle that has uh, a biblical scene of the Israelites coming to an oasis at Elim that's talked about in uh, Exodus, but they have figures in the trees who are picking dates Um, so um, they worked kind of daily economic activity into these scenes Um, but what's very very um, interesting about this panel is these three fish Uh, why three fish? Um, there's a Midrashic tradition from much much later that says that uh, in chapter 2 of Jonah it speaks about a fish, dag then it switches to what the rabbis thought was a female form, Daga, and then switches back to Dag. Um, And so there are Midrashim that say, okay, first Jonah was swallowed by a male fish, but it wasn't so bad. So then he was swallowed by a female fish and he he didn't like it, but he was still not ready to um, repent. And then he was swallowed by an even bigger, fiercer male fish. Um, And here we have a depiction of that in Mosaic from hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. Um, so, I can say more about that if you're, if you're interested. Um, so, here we have once again uh, the d- threat of divine punishment against the people of Nineveh. And it, like with Noah, it hangs over the panel. Um, and uh, a kind of invocation of God's judgment um, uh, as we saw in Noah. You know, we have an octopus, we have a sea snake, and then various species of fish, a dolphin.
2: These are not creatures that one would expect to find in the Sea of Galilee.
1: Right. So in any case, uh, it was in the Mediterranean because he's fleeing from um, Yafo um, to Tarshish, wherever that exactly was. Um, but like with the kind of um, visual vocabulary that seems most familiar really from Scenes of the Odyssey, here you have... Uh, very familiar depictions of sea creatures and this is how they they loved to do these kind of floors with many, 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 many fish sometimes in fountains which was lovely Um, so this is partly the vocabulary of mosaic craftspeople. Here's a sea scene okay this is how you do a sea scene and then obviously within that you have a particular story you want to tell. Okay this is going to be Jonah it's not. Odysseus we're not strapping a guy to a mast we're dumping him down into the water and he's swallowed by these fish, so, but, in, but how you set a scene in the sea um, was uh, partly governed by a certain aesthetic and visual vocabulary. Okay, um, and here uh, um, uh, we have uh, Jonah who's thrown overboard um, in two, one scene that's actually not very far away um, in a church at Beit Guvrin from the sixth century, and uh, and then you can see the famous church of uh, Aquileia. Uh, this is a fourth century floor. And you can actually see how most uh, Christian depictions depict the, um, the fish as a sea monster. In Greek, it was translated as a ketos in, in Septuagint. And you can see here uh, Jonah being uh, cast down into the mouth of the ketos. So this gives you both a sense of um, uh, that the Hukok panel was in dialogue with other Jonah scenes, but also nothing quite like it has ever been found. Um, the closest that we could come up with um, is uh Jonah sarcophagus from... Uh, and here you can actually see what appears to be, well, probably naked, but in any case, a male figure being swallowed by a fish with... Um, legs sticking out, although in ours it's just um, the legs. Uh, And you can see here um, uh, they've turned this um, anchor uh, into a a cross. It's a Christian sarcophagus that depicts something like it. Um, So it's pretty unusual. Yes?
2: How do you know the ages of all these different synagogues?
1: Of, the, of, of synagogues?
2: Yeah, or, or, or all of them? How do you know how old they are? You say third century, third century? Well,
1: so in some cases, things are found in archaeological digs. Mm-hmm. And um, if they were found in the last 40 years, then there's relatively um, regular um, stratigraphy uh, that gives us a sense of um, the coinage, mostly coins and pottery, sometimes glass. That's the basic answer. And through stratigraphy, many other items are not are from the antiquities market. Much harder to date, um, and so you're left doing it from style or a certain kind of um, technology. Um, so where I'm using dates, uh, I'm uh, um, I'm partly dependent on the scholarship. If, if I don't know, um, for example, um, uh, you know, it's not. I think. Um, uh, um, I'm trying to think of an example of something that um, you can see, you know, third or fourth century. It's not very precise, <laughs> right? So, uh, you know, so we, it's not in the second century because we have no Christian artifacts from the second century. Um, and it fits within the types of sarcophagi that are being produced in those centuries. But it's 200 years, you know, it's between us and the founders or, How you know.
2: Exists,
1: like yeah, they do carbon dating. So for Hukok, um They've done carbon dating. They've done stratigraphy, and also based on the style of the mosaics. And so um, the data still arrange, say, from three seventy-five to four fifty. Um, the archaeologists are convinced that it's around uh, four hundred. Um,
2: uh, what's that word what that you? to What was that?
1: Stratigraphy. Yeah,
2: what
1: is strata oh. of the ground okay. that give you um, changes in use of a given. Um, uh, area and every time there's a use that changes or say there was a fire and you have a burn layer then you're in a new stratum and if you know when the fire is from because you have a, a text that says there was a huge fire that burnt this church down in the year 625 then you know everything below it must be before 625 so, um, so archaeologists use stratigraphy uh, but by the way there are major de- debates about the dating of synagogues Uh, And the reason why the archaeologist Jody Magnus was digging in this in the first place is because she thinks that most Galilean synagogues are from uh, after 375, and many of them from the 5th and 6th century. And there are um, scholars, archaeologists, especially in Israel, who think that many of those buildings are from the 3rd century. Um, So there's a massive debate, including the Israeli archaeologist who dug at Wadi Hammam, the, the other site with the Red Sea panel, uh, who thinks that's around the year 300, and my archaeologist, who thinks that this building is from the year 400, you think, well, these two mosaic panels are so similar that they had to have been produced, if not by the same workshop, within a generation of each other, but the ar- archaeologists are 100 years off. It seems like too much to actually explain the stylistic similarities between the panels. So somebody's wrong, um, and you know how you get them within a reasonable distance Um, I leave that to the archaeologists, but I see there's a big problem. So no, it's not, you know, it's scientific, but science is not a matter of, you know, absolute certainty. Um, Okay, so now we're going to move to the, we should move quickly through the Samson panels. This is uh, found in the East Isle, and you can see that at Chukot we have two scenes. One is Samson carrying the Gate of Gaza. Um, uh, I should... Find myself back in my text. Um, um, right, so here uh, this is um, Judges 16 after Samson has an encounter with a prostitute, uh, and he escapes at midnight rather than waiting till morning to be um, ambushed. And he leaves Gaza and he takes the gate on his shoulders. Uh, just to the north of that, we have just a tiny portion of another Samson panel. Um, and Samson here is quite clearly a giant, as he does also seem to be here. Um, he's a giant figure. Uh, and here we have our pairs of foxes with their tails uh, tied together. Um, and uh, here, this is from chapter 15, in which Samson ties uh, pairs of foxes together with, uh, to a torch, and he... Um, sends them out into the Philistine fields to burn the fields. Interestingly, at Wadi Hamam, three kilometers away, there's another uh, very close similarity where we have a Samson panel. Notice, Samson's a giant by comparison to the other figures. This is a different scene from the Samson cycle, but it is a, a scene from the Samson cycle here. Um, episode from chapter 15 in which Samson smites the Philistines with the jawbone of an axe. And you can see here um, these figures are, are bleeding. Um, here he looks like he's standing almost like an Egyptian pharaoh with his feet out and he's smiting them. I don't know if you have this image, perhaps some of you do, of Egyptian pharaohs using a mace to smite their enemies as is classic in um, Egyptian art. So it seems like he's standing and was holding the jawbone of an ass, and uh, you can see that um, blood is shooting forth from their mouths, uh, from their heads. There's
2: an inscription there on the bottom right.
1: Yeah, so that's an, a, a, uh, a dedicatory inscription. It doesn't actually say what the scene... It was what, what? A dedicatory inscription that, that says that there's a donor right. in the synagogue. Right. So uh, whether that donor gave that particular panel, it doesn't say, but it says, uh, may so-and-so's memory... Be remembered for, for a blessing. Um, okay, um, uh, we can see here that um, uh, I'm going to skip through this. this. is a depiction of um, David with almost certainly, the um, armor and uh, weapons of Goliath after he's uh, uh, slain him. So these scenes that we've seen of uh, violent victory over Israel's enemies, which are found at Chukok and Wadi Hamam, and perhaps also here at Merot, another uh, Galilean synagogue farther north. Suggest a sustained interest on the part of some communities in Lower Galilee in displays of martial strength, of military might. Um, And the Wadi Hammam synagogue was excavated starting in 2005, and Hukok was excavated in 2011. Up until 15 years ago, we had no idea that synagogue communities were um, interested in uh, military scenes of violence and destruction. We had this, but this seemed like a, an outlier. Um, David and and, and, and it's not even clear who it was exactly. Here's another. You can see a donor inscription, mm-hmm. Yudan Bar Shimon. Um, so they would include donor inscriptions in these, uh, not necessarily as labels. So other synagogues, um, the other so that's,
2: sy- so that's where we get the custom from. Our-
1: People have been giving. Well, that wasn't just a Jewish thing. That was uh, the Greeks and Romans loved to put up plaques to commemorate uh, um, donors. That was the whole life of the city. Was you are you are a patron and you give to your city and you get honor and respect and you also get you know patronage uh, privileges, which means you get to collect taxes and things like that. And then you give some of the money back and you build beautiful libraries, and coliseums, and things like that, um, and so forth. So that, this is a Jewish reflex of this broader Mediterranean practice of, um, of, of, of patronage to public institutions. So we're a, a late echo of that civic life. Um, so I'm going to just um, look quickly at the Dura Synagogue. It's, um, uh, there are quite a number of scenes from the Dura Synagogue. Um, that range from the depiction of the battle of Ebenezer between the Israelites and the Philistines, um, uh, in which um, you can see, for example, the Israelites carrying the Ark into battle and uh, uh, the um, warfare that ensues. Uh, In fact, um, the depictions of the armed figures, whether Israelite or Philistine, are absolutely contemporary with third century Roman and Sasanian styles of armor. And in fact, from the excavations in and around the city of Dura Europus, which was this um, um, frontier city where the army was stationed and where fateful battles were fought. And in fact, the synagogue is so well preserved because within about 10 years of the paintings being placed on the walls of the synagogue, the city was captured by the, by the Sasanians and destroyed. And in the process, they tried to keep the Sasanians out by putting sand against the walls of the city. Happened to be that the synagogue was built up against the wall of the city. So the wall against the wall of the city that had these paintings was covered up with sand. Which is, and it preserved. preserved whatever wasn't. You can, you can go back here, you can see Um, that the sand went to here, and so about half of the building is preserved, but on the other sides of the building, um, where they weren't um, trying to put in uh, the siege materials, um, they weren't. Okay. So um, here we have, um, uh, as a kind of um, bookend to this scene in which the Philistines take the Ark, uh, we can see that the Ark itself causes uh, destruction to um, the Temple of Dagon, um, uh, uh, and eventually the Philistines say, take it back, um, and the Israelites bring the Ark back to Jerusalem um, with, uh, under David um, from the Temple of Dagon. Um, so we have uh, a kind of uh, strong interest in uh, military... Um, scenes from the Hebrew Bible, and God's destructive and saving power. And God triumphs. And, God triumphs. Uh, and there, there are many others. I've just brought you a few here. This is now to return to the Red Sea painting, uh, the, the Red Sea panel. Um, you can see here again um, a city as uh, a representation of Egypt with Moses leading the Israelites out. They... Um, he smites the water, the Israelites cross, he smites the water again, and the Egyptians drown, and then um, he leads uh, in kind of military-style procession, um, the 12 tribes of Israel, holding their Roman-style standards um, um, out into the, into the desert.
2: These
1: are frescoes, right? These are frescoes, yeah. These are frescoes. Um, So uh, here I've just briefly touched on the Dura Synagogue um, and uh, these paintings give a very clear indication that uh, the realia, the um, actual objects that were used by soldiers in and around Dura were salient for this frontier Jewish community. Um, And uh, And so we can explain, I think, part of its interest. Perhaps um, the residents of this town were familiar with the military. Perhaps some of the Jews provisioned the military. Perhaps some of the Jews served in the military. Um, And that might partly explain the interest in many of these panels in um, in, in, in military might. Uh, But beyond its immediate local context, the artistic program at Dura, and especially its exploration of the themes of conflict between Israelites and their idolatrous neighbors, may also give us insight into the broader culture of religious competition in the multi-ethnic cities and towns of the Roman East. So if these paintings are partly about the Bible, but also partly about the militarized frontier town, but also partly about living in a city alongside pagans and Christians and asserting the sort of muscular power of your god. And these are all, I think, con- contributed to the um, emphasis on uh, military power and divine power working together um, in many of these uh, Dura panels. So the question uh, is, um, and here I'm going to move forward into a slightly different part of the presentation, how to make sense of this interest. Are, is this wholly surprising? Um, this cluster of scenes that emphasize redemptive violence enacted by God uh, in places like Hukuk and Wadi Hamam. And what I want to suggest is that these scenes have affinities to traditions of penitential prayer. Um, now, uh, Penitential prayer um, was not a separate genre of uh, poetry or prayer in the ancient world and is woven into many, many Uh, uh, different types of compositions. Um, But these penitential prayers, these prayers asking for forgiveness on behalf of the community, um, uh, do share broadly certain kind of common features. In particular, they invoke uh, precedents or models for divine assistance in the present based on divine assistance that was given in the past okay. Um, and one of the earliest examples of this type of prayer we actually find already in the rabbinic text, the Mishnah, in a tractate called Mishnah Taanit that gives uh, um, procedures for fast days um, and uh, in the part of the tractate that uh, details instructions for a communal fast in response to a delay in the arrival of the autumn rains we have a description of a kind of a, a ceremony and um, it shares many of the formal features of later um, liturgical poems, piyutim that ask for forgiveness these are called slichot piyutim many of which are associated with um, the elul season leading up to uh, the days of atonement Um, and uh, I'll give you a sense of of how this works. The ceremony is described in the Mishnah as follows. How were the last seven days of fasting orchestrated? They would bring out the ark into the open space of the town and put burnt ashes on the ark and on the head of the patriarch and on the head of the chief of the court, and everyone else would uh, put the ashes on their own head. The eldest among them pronounced before them words of admonition. My brothers, it is not said of the people of Nineveh, is it not said of the people of Nineveh, God saw their sackcloth and their fasting, but God saw their deeds that they turned from their evil ways. And in the prophets, it says, tear your hearts and not your clothes and turn back to the Lord your God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abundant in kindness and forgiving of sins. So there's a kind of recitation of um, uh, and a reminder of, of sins, but that true repentance, like the Ninevites, is through real deeds, um, and then God will be responsive as a kind and forgiving God. They arose they rose to say the Amidah, the standing prayer, sending down before the ark an old man, familiar with the prayers for fast days, one with children whose house was empty of food so that he might be wholehearted in the prayer. So somebody who knows the the liturgy and also will be praying out of actual need. He recited before them 24 blessings, the 18 regular daily blessings to which he added six additional ones. And then we got a discussion of um, different verses uh, from uh, the Bible that will be recited. And then we have... A litany of prayers that were supposed to um, frame uh, these verses. So, following the uh, seventh benediction, um, which is the first prayer of this, uh, we're counting the seventh as the first prayer. Um, the prayer leader recites The one who answered Abraham upon Mount Moriah, may he answer you all and heed the sound of your cries on this day. Blessed be you, God. Who redeems Israel? And There's this litany, Misha Anan. This is still the litany that's said um, in the in many of the slichot prayers. Uh, just as the one who answered so and so, so may you answer us now, Misha Anan, is a form And then it goes through and gives us a litany of events. So uh, our ancestors at the Sea of Ancestors at the Sea of Reeds, Joshua at Gilgal, Samuel at Mitzpah, Elijah at Mount Carmel, Jonah from the bowels of the fish. Here we have Jonah again as part of this, and then David and Solomon uh, are are answered. Um, So this kind of uh, litany in which uh, examples from the biblical past are held up as models uh, for, um, uh, uh, for piety, for prayer, for successful prayer, and that draw a parallel between the biblical past, the ancient past, and the present is something that we find actually in a wide range of prayers uh, outside of the standard liturgy. And in fact, something I won't get into now, but the Mishnah itself is strange, why the seventh prayer is the first prayer. It seems that actually um, the rabbis are reworking an older ceremony to conform to their idea that um, you shouldn't read texts from the Hebrew Bible, After a prayer, but that you should read a text from the Hebrew Bible and then end it with a prayer. So they don't like that there are actually um, um, more uh, verses than prayers. And so that's why that text is very, very strange. So there seems to be a very widespread um, penitential idiom in which you call on the ancient past, the biblical past. Um, in uh, in order to do work for you in the present as a uh, praying community. Yes, you had a question?
2: Yeah, what was fasting like then? They said seven days of fasting, you know, if it's no water and no food, that would be really, really difficult. You know, I can understand no food in seven days, but no water... I'm just wondering. What did, what did they do, like, I think it's a little run? bit
1: far from from uh, yeah so yeah, um, yeah, but, but uh, the just they stop,
2: they were,
1: uh, yes um, people did would not not drink for weeks on end so um, uh, these were largely food fasts and not not drinking um, and it was done as a community and it would get more and more severe as the drought would continue um, So here, for example, we have a text from the first century that's uh, preserved um, only by Christian communities called For Ezra, here um, in uh, the Latin translated to English. Uh, And here you have a very similar uh, question. Uh, Can one... uh, um, ask for your ancestors to intercede on your behalf based on their piety, or are we all going to be judged on our own merits? Um, and that's the question that this uh, prophet figure, um, this visionary, wants to know. Um, he's writing after the destruction. And, uh, the, angel says, um, and the angel says, no, uh, at the end of days, um, God's going to judge us all on our own merits. And uh, the, the prophet argues with him. He says, well, but we find that Abraham prayed for the people of Sodom and Moses uh, prayed for our fathers and Joshua um, after him, for Israel and Samuel. gives example after example, example, precisely in a kind of litany of great ancestors who prayed on behalf of the community. So clearly God listened in each of these cases. And as I said, um, the, the angel says, sorry, that's fine. In the normal course of history, Various righteous people can pray for their community. When God comes at the end of times, you're all going to stand bare uh, with um, your own righteousness or unrighteousness for God to judge. So here's an example from uh, about 100 years before the Mishnah, again of, a, of an example of prayers um, said by exemplary figures of, um, asking for forgiveness in an effective way. Um, in Three Maccabees, we have a similar prayer that's said by a, uh, uh, a figure um, named Eleazar. Um, and uh, here um, uh, we get, again, a litany of people, the three companions of Daniel, Daniel himself, and Jonah, all of whom um, are, whose uh, power to um, be released from danger um, is being invoked uh, on behalf of the community. This kind of litany um, also appears in what looks uh, to many scholars like an early um, Jewish prayer in Greek that was um, preserved uh, by Christian communities. And here you have uh, 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 this: "You who have fulfilled the promises made through the prophets, who showed mercy on Zion and had compassion on Jerusalem by exalting the throne of your David, your servant David, in its midst. O oh, Master God, please do accept also now the prayers which come from the lips of your people. First, you beheld the sacrifice of Abel and accepted it. Then that of Noah, Abraham. Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Aaron, a whole litany that goes through all of biblical and Jewish history, um, of figures who, uh, who prayed on behalf of the community. Um, and, uh, and once we remind God of all of these examples of divine saving power, some of these are military, some of these are, are otherwise. Um, then the text ends, except therefore also the prayers of your people. So here we have a very close parallel to the Mishnah text. Misha uh, and not just as God answered the prayers of the, um, of, of Abraham, Moses, and so on, some righteous ancestor, uh, so too should you intercede on our behalf. Um, So I think that these examples uh, give us a sense that um, uh, within the synagogue liturgy, uh, of which we are being treated to a wonderful performance, um, uh, there were these kinds of lists of scriptural and historical examples that um, were being activated um, as part of uh, the... Um, action of prayer to remind God of earlier examples of intervention um, and uh, I want to suggest that even if penitential prayer is not the only source in which we see this kind of litany although it's one of the places that it's most pronounced um, it's possible that penitential prayer uh, provides one of the sources or one of the models for um, understanding what a viewer who would be there for the liturgy, would have made of these examples of um, scenes that give expression to God's great might, especially um, in the face of um, military foes, but also in the face of um, human frailty and sin and God's capacity to forgive. So. Uh, What I'd like you to take away from the Hukok floor, put into the context of a small number, and I think a growing number, of examples. Dura we've known for a long time, but it seemed like an outlier. Here, all of a sudden, we have a much broader vocabulary of biblical scenes, many of them chosen precisely to give expression to this um, aspect of God's retributive justice. So uh, whether all of the scenes from Hukok fit together neatly into a single story, there are uh, some interrelated themes. First uh, uh, is water. Uh, Water is an enormously central part of many of these stories, not all. Um, And interestingly, the prayer for water, especially in uh, cases of drought, And the centrality of water to life um, in an agricultural village um, is very suggestive. Um, Second is the violent destruction of life, whether human or animal. The pictorial repertoire at Hukok and elsewhere celebrated the heroism of those who, with the assistance of God, defeated the mortal enemies of Israel, a litany that thus far includes Egyptians, Philistines, and Greeks. And other panels like Noah and Jonah also invoke the potentially destructive power of God. The inclusion of a, at Hukok of a scene from the Hellenistic period calls attention to the military heroism of the Jewish people beyond the biblical period, as if to affirm that the temporal horizons of God's redeeming violence is radically open-ended. And I should uh, call attention here. In this prayer, the litany continues all the way up to Mattathias and his sons, and there's zeal for you. So um, in this prayer, um, which uh, may be a Greek synagogue prayer, uh, the story of divine redemption continues into what you might call the historical period out of the biblical past. This, the deep past is continuous with the proximate past, say the Hellenistic period, and both serve together as precedent for the present need. Say, for example, for... Um, reign, and also maybe for future hope, uh, a horizon that may include um, re- the greater redemption from, uh, the, from living in under the yoke of uh, foreign rulers. In juxtaposing blood spilled in battle with scenes of mutual recognition, like in the elephant panel, the mosaics reflect uh, the complex strategies of confrontation and accommodation. So this may not be a story of being anti-Roman. Uh, I don't think it is necessarily a story of being anti-Roman. It's a story, I think, of, um, of uh, a muscular posture that um, also, at least in the elephant panel, um, might have suggested mutual recognition and accommodation. And these strategies of confrontation and accommodation reflect the central strategies that were pursued by Galilean Jews within the context of late Roman Palestine as the Roman Empire was becoming a Christian empire.
0: Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming,